Welcome to Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Today, we're not only finishing up our series, The Best Sermon Ever, we're finishing our first season. We hope you've enjoyed this past year as much as we have. We sure have, and we thank you for the success we've had. Yes. And unlike seasons of TV shows, we're not taking a long hiatus between seasons. We'll be back next week with episode one of season two. We have some exciting topics we're going to cover in the next season, including our next series, which is called Deciphering the Book of Revelation. We're also looking at some other series, like the Bible says that, maybe a series on church history, other religions and cults. We're going to do part two of Real Truth About Real Stuff. Lots of good stuff to look forward to. But first, Chris, let's wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout this entire sermon, Jesus has been hitting us nonstop with hard truths, and he doesn't let up even at the end. No, he doesn't. He finishes up this sermon with some truths that are often misunderstood and misinterpreted. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 7, 21 to 23, which say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Rose, these verses are sometimes interpreted incorrectly. There are some who think Jesus is saying that you can lose your salvation. But that's not what he's saying at all. Those who think that Jesus is saying that are missing two very important biblical truths. First, once redeemed by God, a person cannot lose their salvation. Because God is sovereign over your salvation, once the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart and you've responded to the effectual call, which is God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation, you cannot ever lose it. As Ephesians 1, 11 to 14 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To be redeemed means to be purchased. When we're saved, we're purchased by God at the cost of Jesus' blood. We belong to God for all eternity. Yes, amen. And the second biblical truth they're missing from this passage is that they assume that anyone who performs miracles must be from God. Hmm. And just to repeat, Matthew 7, 22, which is the verse that gets misinterpreted, says, On that day many will say to me, meaning Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Some think this verse means that people must have been saved at one time because they did mighty things in the name of God. But since Jesus says he doesn't know them, they must have lost their salvation somehow. But Chris, this isn't the case. No. Not at all. No. If we go back to Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, 
You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's sobering. And in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. These two verses, along with several others, show us that it's certainly possible for those who are not of God to perform wonders and miracles. Examples of this would be demons, psychics, witches, devil worshipers, or anyone who gets their supernatural power from Satan. And of course, God is sovereign not only of Satan, but of all the people doing these acts. Absolutely. And he's also sovereign of the miracles and signs that they're performing. Absolutely. They can only do what God has allowed them to do. God's specific reasons for allowing Satan to give power to his pawns might vary by situation. But the general reason is that God works through them for his purposes. For example, in the Deuteronomy passage, God allowed the fake prophets to perform signs to test his people to see if they would be drawn away from him and into idol worship. And most of them were. Yep. But something important to note is that while God may be sovereign over them and uses them, these people are responsible for their actions and their words. Anyone who says that something they're doing or saying is from God when it's not is going to be held accountable for their sin. And they will be held accountable because they aren't believers and therefore they're under God's wrath for their sin. But Rose, this passage is about more than just extreme cases where people are using power from Satan to perform signs and wonders and claiming it's from God. This passage hits a lot closer to home. This is about people who will think they are saved only to find out they never were. I can't imagine. But is it possible to think you're a believer but not be one? Is it possible to go to church every week and maybe even do some great things in Jesus' name without Jesus being your Lord and Savior? The answer to both those questions is yes. We talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. Jesus speaks about those who think they're believers but aren't. Examples of people who may think they're saved but really aren't would be like those who like the idea of going to church or maybe they even want to do some good works and help people but their heart is still hardened against God. They aren't looking to Jesus to save them from the sins they've committed against our holy God, nor are they interested in Jesus being Lord of their life. Instead, their reasons for doing what they're doing are self-serving and not a result of being saved. That's right. As Ligonier Ministry says, those who teach falsehoods usually have no desire to follow God's word and care little if scripture endorses their positions will probably not be taken off guard on Judgment Day when Christ banishes such hardened individuals. However, this passage warns us that some will be surprised when many who appear to be believers are barred access to glory on that day. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And maybe some of you right now are wondering if you're truly saved. Ask yourself this question. Why do you go to church? Why do you serve God? Is Jesus the center of your life and is God's truth important to you? Those are great questions. And again, we aren't talking about going through a dry spell where you're feeling far from God. We're talking about what drives you spiritually. Is it reverent awe and love for God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? 
Or is it a warm, fuzzy, satisfying feeling that you get from hanging out with other Christians on Sunday morning or working on a project to help people? Is it about God or is it about you? Good questions too. And Chris, while there may be some people who think they're saved but aren't, Jesus knows exactly who belongs to him. As 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Rose, this goes back to what we are always saying. Know what you believe and why you believe it. If those who may think they're saved but aren't ask themselves these questions, what do I really believe and why do I believe it? They would realize they aren't believing what scripture says and aren't relying on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This is exactly why we devoted so much time to our book on this very subject. That's exactly right. Okay, Chris, let's move on to Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. These are probably very familiar verses to us. They say, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. These verses are probably a familiar story and a song. You want to sing it? No, I'll pass on that. (laughs) But this parable is so often taken out of of context. Many believe the two houses represent believers and non-believers. This is not the case. The first word in this passage is, therefore. So whenever therefore is used, it means you need to refer back to the earlier verses because what follows is a conclusion reached based on those verses. Remember middle school English? What is the therefore? Therefore, in this case, it's there to direct us back to what Jesus had previously said. As we said over and over, the entire Sermon on the Mount is addressed to believers. This parable used to wrap up the sermon is no different. Jesus uses it as an object lesson to cause us to ponder on what we're building our hope and life on. Given all that he's told us about what it looks like to live as a child of God in the kingdom of God, he's telling us to examine ourselves to make sure we're truly standing on the truth of God. We said that Luke does repeat parts of the Sermon on the Mount. This parable is one of those parts. It can also be found in Luke 6, 46 to 49. As a carpenter, Jesus didn't just build furniture. He probably also had a hand in building a lot of houses. Is it any wonder then that he tells a parable about building houses? This parable could also be a reference to Psalm 18.2, which says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Remember, Jesus was always referring back to the Old Testament, not to change it, but to clarify the teaching the way it was originally meant to be understood. Jesus portraying himself as a foundation of rocks, a perfect metaphor for Psalm 118.22, which says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus being rejected by the Jews and that he's the cornerstone or foundation of God's kingdom and the one that the church is built on. Jesus being the cornerstone and rock of his people is so essential that this verse in Psalms is quoted in Matthew 21, 43, Mark 12, 10, Luke 20, 17, Acts 4, 11, and 1 Peter 2, 7. That's a lot of scripture. It's a lot. There are also examples of scripture where Jesus is portrayed as a rock. 
For example, Isaiah 28:16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And 1 Corinthians 10:4, which says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. One thing we should notice about these two houses that Jesus talks about is that there's no difference in the house's exteriors. To the passerby, they look exactly the same. The difference lies in the foundations that they're built on. To relate this parable to us, just by looking at a Christian, it would be impossible to tell what they're building their life on. We all sit in church on Sunday, or we used to anyway. Hopefully we will again. (laughs) Hopefully again. Uh, We all smile, chat, sing with one another. Here's the thing. When things are going well in our life and it's nice and sunny out, we don't need a strong footing. We would be just fine standing on a nice cushy foundation of sand. But when the sun disappears and the storms of life wash over us, what we've built our life on suddenly becomes crucial. Remember Matthew six twenty one, which says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This parable is the next step. Where your heart is, there you will build your foundation. Love that. Theologian John Trapp says, Time and the storms of life will prove the strength of one's foundation, even when it's hidden. We may be surprised when we see who has truly built upon the good foundation. At last, when Judas betrayed Christ in the night, Nicodemus faithfully professed him in the day. Great examples. Whether people recognize it or not, everyone's life is built on some foundation. And just because someone's a Christian or says they are doesn't necessarily mean their foundation is built on Jesus and God's word. There are all kinds of things a Christian can have as their foundation. Approval of others, material wealth, personal gratification, the list goes on and on. The problem is when the storms of life come and the water rises, all of these foundations will fail like sand. People may betray you, possessions can be lost, loved ones can disappoint you, or they might die. Lots of things can happen. Right. And we should say that just as no one would intentionally build their house on a bad foundation, people aren't intentionally building their lives on what they know is a bad foundation. The problem is not that they deliberately sought out a bad foundation. The problem is they've given no consideration to their foundation. They neglect to consider what they're building their life on, and whether or not their foundation can withstand a storm. That's right. The man in the parable just wanted to get his house up. Building a house on sand is a lot easier than building a house on solid rock. For sand, you just need to dig down into the sand a little bit and put some posts in. And then you put your house up. A foundation built upon rock would require heavy equipment and a lot of hard work to dig down deep through the solid ground to pour a solid, unmoving footing. It was probably bright and sunny out when the man built his house on the sand. It wasn't until the rains came that he realized just how flimsy and inadequate the sand was. Before the rains come in our life, we need to decide if we're willing to put the work into having Jesus as our foundation. When we go through crises and disasters, the difference of how we come out is directly related to what our foundation is. You know, I remember seeing during Hurricane Harvey on the news I was struck by some people who had lost everything and they were being interviewed and they had great poise and they said, it's just stuff. We're extremely thankful to be alive. And you can contrast that to people during the Great Depression or even the whole Bernie Madoff scandal 
where extremely wealthy people came to financial ruin, a lot of those people committed suicide. So why such different reactions to losing all your earthly possessions? Well, for the first people, while losing everything may be devastating, it's not the end of the world. For the others, losing their stuff is the end of the world because their stuff was their world. Right, exactly. So you want to build your foundation on Jesus. But what exactly does that mean? Let's talk about that a little bit. It means that we're staking our lives on the full and complete message of the gospel. We are great sinners against a holy and almighty God. But through grace, we've been saved by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're to live repentant and in gratitude for everything that Jesus has done for us, cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he transforms us to be more like Jesus, knowing that we have the promise of eternal life in heaven. And we rest in that. Yes. As Colossians 2 Verses 6 and 7 says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And when we do, as Paul says in that Colossians verse, when we are rooted and built up in Jesus and established in our faith, grateful for all that God has done for us, when we do these things, although there's going to be times that we're shaken, we're not going to be completely done in. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I love that verse. And there's a great quote by an unknown author that says, this foundation, the person, blood, and righteousness of Christ, is as a rock, firming and strong, will bear the whole weight of what is laid upon it. It is sure and certain. It will never give away. It is immovable and everlasting. The house built upon it stands safe and sure. Love that. Chris, physical storms are not the only thing that can test our foundation. As we see in Ephesians 4, 14 to 15, False teaching can throw us for a loop if we're not well grounded. We talked a lot about this in the last episode. We did. We called out a lot of people. Yes. Popular people. Yeah, unfortunately. Ephesians 4, 14 to 15 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is a reiteration of what we looked at earlier in verses 15 to 23. How do you make sure that Jesus is your foundation? You study and grow in his word. Knowing the truths, promises, and doctrine found in scripture strengthens our foundation. And we can identify and stand against false teaching then. John Calvin says this about Ephesians 4.14. The general meaning of the passage is... That true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit until it comes to the trial. For the temptations by which we are tried are like billows and storms which easily overwhelm unsteady minds whose lightness is not perceived during the season of prosperity. In other words, it's easy to skate by not knowing scripture and the truths contained in it when life is good. Mm -hmm. hmm. But... 
This leaves us vulnerable to false and heretical teaching. It may be too late when we realize and suffer for our deficiency. Yes. Okay, on to the last couple of verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 28 to 29 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There are two great commentaries on these verses. F.F. Bruce said, The scribes spoke by authority, resting all they said on tradition of what had been said before. Jesus spake with authority out of his own soul. I love that. And this one from Charles Spurgeon, one of our favorites, obviously. This is the quote. Two things surprised them, meaning the people listening to Jesus. The substance of his teaching and the manner of it. They'd never heard such doctrine before. The precepts which he had given were quite new to their thoughts, but their main astonishment was at his manner. There was a certainty, a power, a weight about it, such as they had never seen. You know, if you want a transforming experience, get a red letter Bible. And the red letter Bible is all the words that Jesus spoke. And read all the words in red throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. These are the words, like I said, that Jesus spoke directly. When you go through and just read what Jesus said without all the other narratives, you're going to feel the same amazement that the crowd did. And hopefully, looking at a chunk of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been doing for the past 12 weeks, has given you a hunger to read the rest of what Jesus had to say in the Gospels and the Book of Acts. But that's all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next week for the start of Season 2 of No Trash, Just Truth, when we begin deciphering the Book of Revelation. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on so you won't miss an episode. And stay tuned in the coming weeks for word of the release date of our next book, The Bible in Six, which is an overview of all 66 books of the Bible. Have a blessed day, everybody. 